All right, Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Titus 2 this morning. So we took a detour and spent time in the book of Jonah. That was a phenomenal study. We're going to come back to Titus. And Titus is relevant for us. It is in Titus. Titus is one of the letters Paul wrote uh, in which he lines out the qualifications for elders. We saw that in chapter 1 of Titus. So Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is his spiritual son. Titus is also a pastor. So this is a pastoral letter. Titus is pastoring on the island of Crete. Paul has left them there, left him there temporarily to pastor that church. And as Paul writes, to set in order the things that are lacking and to appoint elders, qualified elders in every city. In chapter 1, the qualifications for those elders were given. And the task facing Titus and those elders was laid out as they were given the responsibility of leading the church. In chapter 2, we see instructions concerning those Titus is charged with shepherding. Titus is charged to address the health of the church by addressing the spiritual health of families and households. This is where we will be today in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is our text, Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, Reference, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good Fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. This is the word of the Lord. Father, let your word find entrance into our hearts this morning. By your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, lead us and guide us and illuminate this word, that it would mold us and shape us and renew our minds that we would be a people conformed to the glory of the Son, conformed to the image of Christ. We ask this 
that you would be glorified in your church and in this congregation called Christ Fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in chapter 2, Paul gives specific instructions to the pastor concerning himself and concerning those that he is responsible to shepherd. Paul is addressing the health of the church by rightly addressing the spiritual condition and conduct of those who are the church. The church is not this building. You are the church. The building is where the church meets. And there is no important meeting than this meeting. And this idea in our modern Western concept that I can be the church, that I can be a Christian and just float around disconnected to anything or anyone is not biblical, it's not historical, it is not God's word, and it is not God's way. We're called a flock, a family, an army. Every way that Christ describes his church, he describes it as a corporate body assembled together for a specific purpose. And here he is addressing shepherds who are charged with overseeing the flock. And Paul rightly touches on the health of the church by delving into the health of the family. The health of the family is the health of the church and vice versa. The reason our culture is in such disarray today is because the family is in disarray. And I submit to you the family is in disarray because the church, specifically the pastors and the shepherds, have not done their job properly to speak sound doctrine. A truly healthy church requires truly healthy households and families. This requires pastors to speak the things which are proper. As hard as this sermon may be for you today, just know I got it first, okay? So I've already received it. I've already been disciplined by it, corrected by it, rebuked by it. So don't worry. If your toes get stepped on, mine have been stomped on, okay? To pastors and elders, here's where we start in chapter 2. Paul writes, but as for you, Pastor Titus, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. The first thing that sticks out to me here is the word speak. Speak. Paul commands Titus, who is a pastor, to speak. Pastors must not be afraid to speak truth. Unfortunately, Far too many are today. They're more concerned about keeping their sheep happy instead of worried about the wolves that are devouring them or the ones that have wandered off and become disconnected from the flock who think they're safe, but they're actually in grave danger. The pastor is specifically commanded to speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That command is still in force today for every pastor, for every teacher, for every preacher. A pastor must speak, and he must speak proper things. 
pastor is to preach and teach the counsel and counsel speaking the things that are proper for sound doctrine, Paul writes. He's not to drift with the shifting winds of the culture, but he is to be anchored in the truth and the hope who is Jesus Christ. The shepherd must not be led by the sheep. He must lead the sheep. He must lead them into truth even when it hurts. This is a word to live by. We teach our kids at KCCS. Tell the truth. Tell the truth even when it hurts. The truth certainly may pain us, but it will never harm us. The pastor must not fear truth. He must embrace it, and so must we all. Speak the things which are proper. That is, speak things which are right, consistent, appropriate, and fitting for sound doctrine. This is the command to Pastor Titus. It is the Lord's command to every pastor, to every teacher, to every preacher of the gospel. It is also the Lord's command to every saint who is being equipped for the work of the ministry. That means it is the Lord's command to each and every one of us because you're here, you're called, you're commanded to not forsake assembling together as is the manner of some. You are commanded to assemble together to be equipped for the work of ministry. That's not what I say. That's what the Bible says. That's what God says. Therefore, this command to speak things which are proper really is a command to each and every one of us. To me as your pastor, but also to you as one being equipped for the work of ministry. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We've turned our churches, our church sanctuaries into concert and entertainment halls where people can come and escape for an hour or two and leave the world behind and recharge for the coming week. Christ did not give pastors and teachers to the church so saints could recharge. You need to settle that in your heart right now. Today is not a recharge day. Your time here is not for you to recharge. Your time here is very specific according to the word of God. It is to be equipped. And there's a big difference. It is to be equipped for the work of ministry. This is the work every the work of every believer. You are not here to recharge. You are here to learn to work. We are to be equipped for the work of service to the Lord. Specifically, we are called to the work of ministry. That is the work of serving Him. And that means serving His church and serving one another. This is the work of transforming the world. We are not placed here to just survive until God evacuates us. I know we've fallen in love with this false doctrine called the rapture, that we're all going to get escaped out of here. No, that's not why we're here. We're not here to make it until we're evacuated out. We're here not just to convert people to Christianity and save as many until God raptures us out. No, if you read the Bible 
accurately, rightly dividing it, we are here to transform the world. Jesus said, go and make disciples of the nations. That is a mandate. That is a command to go and to take dominion and conquer the world with the gospel of Christ. When do we stop doing that? When Jesus returns physically, bodily, to rule and to reign on this earth. And who's going to rule and reign on this earth with him? His church will, his body. That's you. That's me. That's all who have the name of Christ. So we're here to learn to work. We're here to transform the world. And this is a work of love. It is the work of building up the body. It is the work of making disciples, of proclaiming the gospel and making his glory known. This is done through both word and deed. This is your work. This is my work. This is our true job. This is our business. This is our career. All your work is bound up in your real work, the work of ministry. This is your most important work, the kingdom work of ministry in the gospel. All other work simply supports and enriches that work that we are all called to in Christ. Paul was a professional tent maker, but he only made tents to support his work in the ministry. In other words, Paul didn't identify as a tent maker who was a Christian. He identified as a Christian, as an apostle who happened to also make tents. But his identity was not in his tent making career. His identity was in Christ. And so our identity must be in Christ and anything and everything we else we do in this world is subservient and second to that identity because we're here to transform the world we're here to conquer the world for Christ Christians must stop living as though Christianity is just one more thing to add to life to make it better you know, another tool in your tool belt to build your best life yet? That's the mentality we need to get rid of and the false doctrines we need to get rid of. We need to go back to the Bible and begin to live according to God's Word. Christianity and church are not things we simply add to our already full lives if we happen to have time at the end of the week. And if not, no worries. That is an idolatrous lie. To say our Christian faith is much more than an add more than an add-on is at the very least a gross understatement that does not begin to accurately portray what it means to be called Christian. I don't know if you've ever heard of Eric Lytle. They made a movie, a very famous movie about him. It won, I think, the Oscar for best movie in the year that it came out called Chariots of Fire. And Eric Lytle 
was born in China to missionary parents, Scottish missionary parents. And he returned to his homeland, or his father's homeland, and in 1924, he participated in the Olympics. Eric Lytle was a runner. He loved to run. And his event was the 100-meter dash. And he trained, and he made it all the way to the Olympics, only to find out that his 100-meter final for the gold medal was going to be run on a Sunday And after a lifelong of training and work and making it to the Olympics, guess what Eric Lytle said? There is no gold medal worth sinning against my Lord. I will not run on the Lord's day. And he did not. All that time, all that training wasted simply because he held his conviction, or so the world would say, The son of a missionary family born in China, Lytle held to his conviction as a witness to his faith. He ended up winning two gold medals in events that were not his. But he ran them because he couldn't run his event. And he won a gold medal in the 200, and he won a gold medal in the 400. Eric Lytle did not hold to his convictions because running or competing was not important to him. He held to his conviction because the Lord he loved was more important to him and more important than running or any other sporting event or any other thing that can take us away. That kind of conviction in the church is now the exception, not the rule. We need that kind of holy conviction once again. And maybe we wouldn't see our nation and our families and our culture falling apart at the seams. There is no greater honor than to have the name Christ placed upon your life. Your life as a Christian should reflect that. As a pastor, I am commanded to speak those things which are proper for sound doctrine. I am to speak those proper things which will convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. God does not command me to make excuses for you. God does not command me to let you off easy. Because after all, we're living in 2022, not the year 122. And things have changed, Pastor, don't you know? The Bible, you know, it's not as relevant as it used to be. We need to get current with the culture. No. We need to get current with God's word. This is why the Lord has given us his word. As Paul writes to Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. You catch that? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. You are to be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's 
why God commands me and all pastors to speak those things which are proper for sound doctrine. Then Paul goes on to instruct Titus concerning different demographic groups within the church. For instance, in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, he addresses older men. To older men, he says, Titus, talk to the older men. Speak the things that make for sound doctrine to the older men. Verse 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Paul is addressing the aged, the older, more mature men. This older men literally means old men. He is instructing Titus concerning those men who have lived long enough to have gained more experience and wisdom through age. These are men who have no doubt fathered children, fathered families, grandchildren, and are now at an advanced age and have gained a measure of wisdom and experience that a younger person cannot possess because they haven't lived on this earth long enough. That's not demeaning to younger men. Paul is just exhorting, commanding Titus to take advantage of the age wisdom, and experience that older men possess. These older men are to be examples for the younger men. Paul is commanding that these older men teach through their words and through their deeds, that they be examples through their lives that are lived out. That means these older men are going to have to be purposeful in how they live out their life and who they live out their lives in front of. The first thing he says to older men is be sober. Be not given to wine. This is a command to be sober and to be vigilant. Only sober men can be vigilant. Drunkards aren't vigilant. Drunk men cannot be watchful and they cannot be vigilant. Self-controlled men are sober and not enslaved to drink. I always tell people, The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to drink, it's a sin to be drunk. And it's a sin to be a drunkard. And if you're not a self-controlled man, then gain self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-controlled men are sober and not enslaved to drink. This is a command that the man of God be sober watchful and vigilant. Or as Paul writes in, first, in Ephesians chapter 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Live under the Spirit's control. Be reverent. Live your life in a way that will be worthy of respect, men. Be dignified, honorable, and noble in character. As you men listen to this, you realize this, is just not, this doesn't just apply to old men. It applies to all men. It applies to all people. Be temperate. Be self-controlled, sensible, moderate, discreet, and wise in the way you live your life and conduct yourself. Be sound in faith. 
To be sound in faith has a similar meaning as being sound in body. It is to be spiritually healthy. It's having no unsoundness in the faith. To be sound in faith is to be strong in faith, speaking and holding those things that make for sound doctrine and true spiritual health. It is to be submitted to the Word of God, not to my own imagination about what I think the Word says. In love. The word here is agape, which is the highest form of love. It's not sensual love, it's not brotherly love, it's agape love. It's the kind of love that God loves us with. It is love that abides and abounds and acts even sacrificially. It is not love that is fickle or inconsistent, but love unconditional and constant. This love is to be living or this, this love means to be living in a state of mind and being that is consistent with Christ and his love for us. Now, I want to take just a moment and I want to talk about love in the context of our current culture. Love has sinfully become the exclusive realm of women or feminized men. For many men, love has become something real men don't talk about because that would be considered unmanly. That's a lie. Christ is both the personified epitome of manhood and love in one person. Because we have abandoned patriarchy, you know what that is. The man is the head of the home. The husband is the head of the family. Patriarchy. That is God's design. But because we have abandoned patriarchy and feminized the church, when we speak of men living in love, we want to blush. We've turned love into something modeled and defined by Hallmark movies and cheesy romance novels instead of the Bible. The Bible and our Lord define for us true love. And there is nothing weak and there is nothing cheesy about it. God so loved, he sent his only begotten son to die for us. The son so loved, he laid down his life, not in weakness, but in supreme strength. God commands us to be in love in whatever we are doing. And this requires strength beyond human ability. The love we are commanded to live in requires divine strength. The love we are to model is that of the dragon slayer who came to sacrifice his life in love for his bride. The one who through love conquered sin and death itself. This is love. This is the love the Lord has for his bride. This is the love men and women are to live out at all times in all things. This there is nothing weak about this love. It is love so strong it conquers all enemies, including sin and death and the grave. Men, do not fear love. Live in it as commanded by the scripture. He also commands that we live in patience. 
This word is most often translated patience in the scripture, but it's also translated endurance and steadfastness. Its meaning conveys all of these, patience, long-suffering, endurance, steadfastness, just as we are to be in love in all things, we are to be possessing ourselves in patience, endurance, and steadfastness. We are to let patience have its perfect work, knowing that God is working in and through all things to produce in us character and hope that will not disappoint. Think about what all of these words, what all of these things are conveying to us in terms of how we are to conduct ourselves and how we are to live our lives. This is an exhortation to older men, but in terms of how we are to live out our faith, it applies alike to both old and young as well as male and female. Then Paul addresses the older women. It's the same thing here. These are women who have who have birthed their children, raised their children. More than likely, they have grandchildren, or now they are in their advanced years of age. There can be a large span that defines older men and older women. The older women likewise, Titus 2, verse 3, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Be reverent. This is not the same word translated reverent up in verse 2, speaking of older men. It means reverent. It has that connotation. But this word, though it, con- it conveys the, the sense of being reverent, is a word that commands behavior that is holy. This word is linked to holiness. Let your behavior, women, be holy. Let it be consistent with holiness. It's behavior that is fitting for one set apart or called holy to the Lord. Let holiness define the behavior of the older women, not slanderers. This word slanderer here is diablos. You may recognize that. It's a word that means devil. Literally, what this says is not a devil making false accusations because that's who the devil is. He is the accuser of the brethren. Paul says, you older women, don't be slanderers like the devil making false accusations. The devil is called the accuser of the brethren and we are not to be slanderous or slanderers making false accusations. This was said to be a besetting sin of many of the older women in the culture. It it pictures a bunch of old ladies, if I could say that, sitting around gossiping and talking about everybody else, about things they don't really know anything about. Busybodies. The scripture says, don't be a busybody. Not given to much wine. Literally, not a slave to wine. Anything that holds us in bondage to sin is sin. Anything that holds us in bondage is sin. That could be wine or that could be chocolate ice cream. But too much wine 
has a very different effect on us than chocolate ice cream. Remember, a man can't be vigilant and drunk at the same time. And so it is the same for women. They are not to be held captive by wine. They are to repent and turn from that. They are to present their bodies as slaves of righteousness to God. They're called to holiness. And just like the older men were called to self-control, so are the older women. And then Paul says this of them, that they be teachers of good things, which implies that they should not be teachers of worthless things, things that don't lead to good. And then he specifically, in addressing Titus to teach the older women, teach the older women to admonish the young women. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That they admonish the young women. The older women are to encourage, to urge, to train by example the younger women in these good things. What are these things that the apostle calls good? It's good to love their husbands. Teach them how to be good and godly wives. It's good to love their children. Teach them how to be good and godly mothers. It's good to be discreet. This is the same word translated temperate in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. It's a command to be sober in mind and body, to be wise and prudent in all their conduct. To be discreet. It's good to be discreet. It's godly to be discreet. It's good to be chaste, to be pure in body, in word, in actions. It's good to keep the marriage and the marriage bed undefiled. It's good to be homemakers. It's good to keep a home. Paul is meddling here, but he makes no apology about it. Because he knows the health of the church is tied directly to the health of families and the health of households. Workers or keepers at home is what this is saying to us. Not busybodies in other people's business, but good managers of their own household. Older women admonish and teach and help the younger women learn how to manage their households. This is for the health of the church. This is for the transformation of the world. When we talk about these things, I want you to take this not just to your own house, not to just your own life. I want you to translate that and take that up the line and realize that what you do at home ultimately leads to the transformation of the world. Because you don't know how what you do at home affects your children. And you don't know how God is going to use your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or that neighbor kid that comes over and has no other example except this mom who has learned how to manage her household. It's good to be a manager 
of your household. It's good and it's godly. And Paul commands it of women. Be good. This word good speaks of kindness. Be kind. Be a person who possesses positive moral qualities. You're not saved by those positive moral qualities. But they demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit of the one who lives in you. Who, in the, the, the life and the fruit of Christ who is your life. In a very practical way, older women teach younger women to be good. Here's the one that our culture really loves today. Older women teach the younger women to be obedient to their own husbands. I can hear the culture cringe right now, even as I say these words. The word here is submissive. It is a command for the wife to be submissive to her husband who, has, who is tasked with God, who is tasked by God. That husband is tasked by God to be the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. This is the proper picture of love and respect in marriage. There is a lot I can say here, but I don't have time to say it. But if you go to the scripture and read the scripture in its proper context, you will understand why this is so important and why this is not only not impossible, it is absolutely necessary for the healing of our nation, the healing of the church, and the healing of our families. What is the purpose of these good things that Paul commands? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Our life is to be a witness to God's glory rather than to our shame. Women do these things that the word of God will not be blasphemed. This command by God for the older women to admonish the younger women is a very practical command for the church. Pastors are commanded to speak those things that make for sound doctrine. Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Ephesus a whole section devoted to husbands and wives and the proper relationship of love and submission that gives a glorious witness to Christ and his church. We must not shy away from these things in our current culture that so vehemently opposes these biblical truths. We must teach them, we must speak them with authority. The church and her pastors must boldly proclaim the truth as presented to us in God's word. The Bible is not outdated. It is not irrelevant for today. On the contrary, it has never been more relevant than it is today. We need women today who are devoted to their families and to teaching and leading by example to raise up the younger generations. We need older and younger women today who will live out these truths and embrace them and celebrate them and reject the destructive narrative that the world is forcing upon us. Resistance is not futile. It is commanded, and it is commanded with the promise of victory. The future of the family depends upon this. The future of the church depends upon this. The church will prevail. There's no question about that. Jesus promises. But what will the church in our day and age, 
What will the church of our children and our grandchildren be like for them if we fail to do what God has commanded? The Lord help us. Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, older and younger, men and women, and their willing obedience and faithfulness to God and His Word will in large part determine our future. If we obey God and walk in His ways, He promises blessing. Then Paul says to the older men to exhort the younger men. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. So just as the older women are to teach and encourage the younger women, the older men are to likewise exhort the young men and be self to be self-restrained, to exercise proper vigilance against the temptation and the wiles of the devil. Then he goes back and he addresses specifically the pastor, the elder, Pastor, elder, in addition to what you are to speak, in addition to speaking sound doctrine, you also are to live it. Verse 7, Titus chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. For pastors, it's not only about preaching good, sound doctrine from the pulpit. It is about living out these truths and putting into action what we speak. It is one thing to speak out from a pulpit. It is another thing to live out in reality. We cannot just speak in our churches. We must walk by faith in this world. We must be witnesses to Christ with our words and with our deeds, both inside and outside the church building. Then Paul exhorts slaves to be obedient, not entitled. This is very politically incorrect also. How dare Paul exhort slaves to obey their masters? He obviously has not learned much about social justice. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This word bondservant here is the word slave. So I'm just going to use what the word literally is. Exhort slaves to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not showing all good, not showing all good fidelity but showing, I'm sorry, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, obviously, none of us are slaves to a master, but I would venture to say some of you may feel like you are slaves to your job or slaves to your business or slaves to the man, you know, the man. And sometimes we're all tempted to have bad attitudes. So we can, we can take this and apply it, and it's relevant for our lives here today. But I don't want to just brush past this fact that Paul, in the Bible, addresses slaves and commands them to be obedient to their masters. We say, well, this certainly isn't relevant for us today. No, actually, it is absolutely relevant for us today. Slavery still exists in the world, more so today than it ever has in history. And the Bible doesn't condone it, doesn't say it's right, but it deals with it because it's a reality. 
Again, we see Paul in Scripture dealing with the reality of life. Slavery, as we typically understand it, is not condoned, but condemned by the Bible. Slavery was, though, a very normal part of the world in the first century world that Paul lived in and that Jesus lived in. For Paul to address both slaves and slave owners would be expected as he's writing Scripture and and telling us how we're to live out our lives. The command to slaves is to be obedient to their own masters, to strive to be well-pleasing in all things, to be compliant and not contradicting, contradicting, not dishonestly keeping back or pilfering, but showing faithfulness over what is entrusted to them. Yes, even slaves were to conduct themselves properly as Christians, as all people are, as all Christians are, whether you're slave or free. They were commanded to do this that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in all things. That even in their slavery, even in their servitude, they gave witness to Christ and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. That in all things, whether slave or free, their faith in Christ would shine and give glorious witness to Christ. That was true for slaves then. That's true for us today, whatever our circumstance may be. And what this shows us is our obedience is unconditional. Your hard, difficult, and even unfair circumstances in life do not give you the right to stop honoring and obeying God. Obedience to God is never conditional. It is unconditional. In fact, our circumstances may dictate even greater and more purposeful obedience to Christ than we may, that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Samuel said to King Saul, just before he ripped the kingdom from him, he said, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because Paul says to Samuel when he's caught red-handed in his sin, but I sacrifice to God. Isn't that good enough? And Samuel said, no. In fact, it's not good enough. To obey is better than sacrifice. But God, I've sacrificed so much in my life for you. So? But God, I've been through so much hardship in my life. So? But God, surely you're going to give me a pass here because... Where is the pass? Where is the compromise? Where do we say God's word doesn't matter anymore? There is no place. There is no condition. Obedience is unconditional. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand. Your charge today is to remember we are Christians. We, you, bear the name of Christ. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Therefore, it is not the world that informs us how we are to live, but Christ and His Word. Do not let your Christianity be an extracurricular of your life. 
You bear the name of Christ, the Lord of glory, the Lord of all. You have been commissioned and charged. You have been commanded by him to go and make disciples of the nations, to go and take over the world for his glory. This is our life. This is our work. This is our destiny, our divine destiny in Christ. Jesus commands our destiny. We sing the song with that line in it. Therefore, live like Jesus is the one who commands your destiny, that you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things for witness to this world for his glory. Amen. Amen.